You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Shmoozing with Rav Meir Shiller, Meir Enikachamim. Rav Meir, we've reached a, a great plateau, I think, in these conversations, which is throwing things out into the podcast cybersphere. We have, it's bounced back. It's almost like we've got the messages and it didn't have to come from some far off planet. It came from so many people uh, throughout uh, the United States and, and, and Canada uh, and Europe who have been listening to these programs. And many of them have written in, in many different formats. And again, I, I, I'm speaking for a mayor. We, we're very happy about this. It, 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 we, we sort of began this like a pickup football game in the backyard. I, I came over to Rev Mayor's house and, you know, in my scruffy, my scruffy shirt and my, and, and, and the deflated ball and said, Hey, you want to throw the ball around a little bit? And my mayor said, who are you again? And then we just started and the game has proceeded. And we really thank you for, for, for the accolades and the suggestions and the critiques as well. So keep those, as Dean Martin used to say, keep those cards and letters coming in. We, we're very happy. So we've taken five questions from our listeners and most of them are directed primarily to Rev Mayer. So I'm going to act somewhat of as, as the interlocutor. Here's the first question. It was sent by someone who is themselves, uh, about Shuva. And he writes the following, the vast majority of Bali Chuva and Geirim, and that is itself strange because how can someone casually demonize one's former self uh, and his family? I've interacted with the Muncie area, and I see so many have shockingly bought into the Haredi narrative on this topic to demonize the other hook, line, and sinker. And this is very troubling to me. I'm interested to hear what Rabbi Shulwer thinks about this matter. Yes, it's a very important question. I know many people in the Haredi world who have felt that they must adopt uh, Haredi-ism in its totality. So even though they might have a love for a certain aspect of reality, of knowledge, of beauty, they feel they must say it's bad, it's evil, as the love exists within them, I, I'm thinking in particular one Rosh Hashim I know who has a great love for American history, great love for language, and yet he feels compelled to always say that he would never send his child into any sort of high school environment. So I think the problem there is one we might have touched upon in the Menachem Daum episode, which is they don't know of any other models. So when they encounter a Torah-Dika, Kachadika model of orthodoxy, it's generally among those who have this demonization philosophy. So they're unaware of something like um, uh, German orthodoxy. They're unaware of Rebitzik Yaakov Reines' Torah Litter. They're unaware of Rabban Lichtenstein. They're unaware of models which would not necessitate the demonization of the non-Jew or the totality of reality. Now, I think another thing happens here, which is uh, for Balchuva or for Aguirre, same thing. They're coming from somewhere. They're coming from there because they want to move off of that and go into Torah mitzvahs. So they make the mistake of thinking that everybody and everything from where they've come are evil and bad in everything. 
which is, of course, not Ishkite. Their family members could be people of great moral character. Their family members could be people of great love for Judaism. And even the clergy at this point in history of those movements could be very, very well-intentioned. So I think we have to ask these people to assess the totality, the Bali Musa used to say, that if you don the Gansa Mensch, it will be inevitably the Kapschus, that their family members can remain as wonderful and as loving and as loved as they always were, but enmeshed in a deep era which permeates all of society. So to sum up, those are the two things. They don't have a more holistic model, and they think they have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. In many cases, what brings a person uh, to make that great leap, sometimes what we're talking about is a dysfunction, uh, a, a sense of of loneliness, a sense of uh, not having a place. There's difficulty in, 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 that's already inherent in why the person makes the jump. We like to see all Kirov as seeing the light, as lighting this, the, the pintle and the shama of being able to really bring something out. Sometimes what we're doing, though, is stoking a situation that was untenable to start out with. There was already difficulty going on. And therefore, since now this is the next movement, demonization is in the pike. Even if they would have gone into uh, to become uh, Bahi uh, adherents or whatever it is, they might demonize their uh, the, the parents or, or the families they come from. Let, let me just add one other layer there. Sometimes, even if it's not dysfunctional, but there is some sort of, you know, juka, as I would say, you know, a, a cockroach, so to speak, in the brain of the parent or the, that somehow that it, it, it touches a nerve. And when the parent or, or mother or father, whoever it is, reacts so violently or so uh, aggressively to the turn that the child uh, wants to take, and therefore, the, the, as a defense mechanism, what happens is is that the, that person who is who's, who wants to make the journey has to demonize and see that person as as an enemy, and that person now becomes a representative of the greater culture. So I think you know you, I think your answer, Rev Mayer, was you know giving all the credit on that side and saying, unfortunately, we don't have a a, a more holistic or uh, more life-embracing or Tzela Milukim understanding in a, a Jewish society. It might be that the reason why this happens is, is because of the problems that the person already brings to the table, either inherently or the process itself brought out a lot of negative feelings, especially in terms of conversion. Just one, uh, to extend that idea for a second, uh, I think we shouldn't neglect the faket, the reverse of what you're saying, which is sometimes a Balshuva is actually inspired by the remnants of Yiddishkeit, which still linger in his family. In my own case, I can say that my grandmother, who had abandoned Kashras, but when we would go to the Chinese restaurant, she would sit there and dutifully pluck every piece of shrimp out of the egg roll. <laughs> and that lingered, that Mesidus Nefesh lingered with her. Plus, she also lit candles Friday night in a home which was not Shemesh Shabbos and covered her hair when she did so. So these sorts of lingering uh, remnants and aspects can sometimes prove inspiring. So again, like 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 all very important questions, you could take a case-by-case example, but 
clearly, it's very easy to feel good about what you did when when the bulwark of that is the negative that you heap on the other side. Let's go on to our second question. And it, we, we've talked often about a term derecheretz. We had an episode that we spoke about Shamshan Hirsch and his approach. And uh, a, a, a listener posits the following question. Is term derecheretz, given its links to the surrounding culture, viable in 2024 with A, rising anti-Semitism, B, hostile college campus environments, and C, in an America whose norms are increasingly out of sync with Torah values? Those are three uh, very different questions, but I'd first suggest that this experience which the writer is talking about is one which Central European Jewry experienced in the 1920s and 1930s uh, as National Socialism and other anti-Semitic movements grew in that in those two decades. So if you were a German Orthodox Jew or an Austrian Orthodox Jew or a Hungarian Orthodox Jew who was not amongst the, the right-wing Orthodox but was more of a, a moderate Orthodox, you went through this back in the 20s and 30s. And it's very, very painful for sure, painful, disconcerting. And I would in, include myself very much in this and that I've often seen myself as part of the Torah Mother Term Derechertz camp, but as the surrounding culture becomes, as you say, increasingly A, anti-Jewish, and B, uh, anti-the good, capital T, capital G, what are we to make of all that? What can we do of that? And I think sometimes um, in recent years when I've tried to articulate Torah Derechertz, Torah Mother, and I feel, well, Maybe this is not the best idea because if a person goes out into the goss, so to speak, today, uh, what is he going to encounter there? There's precious little there to Torahize. As Refersh always put it, we have to run the surrounding culture through the filter of Torah. And since the surrounding culture is no longer just an errant uh, Christian culture, it, it is a culture which despises the good in every possible way. So it, my general answer is this. We still can read, we still can mine the great works that have been produced throughout the centuries. But we have to realize that in the, con the current cultural context, most of what we're going to be doing is rejecting. We're going to have to reject. So uh, the college campuses, I mean, I would question very much, and I hope no one is offended by this, but... Is a college campus a place where a, a, a Jewish boy or girl should be forgetting about anti-Semitism just in general, whether the socio-religious cultural area is where one should be? So again, I think all this means is that we have to have a far, far better filtering system. I thought of a good muscle in the old days. There were two types of filtering systems in, in tropical fish tanks. There was a standard uh, charcoal and cotton, which you placed outside the tank. And then there was an underground filter, which pulled the schmutz down within. But for very sensitive fish, sometimes the tropical fish aficionados would say, you have to use both. You have to use both. So I think today we have to use a very strong filtering system. The fears are legitimate. And if you just turn yourself loose in modern culture, it's going to be disastrous. You know, again, it's a very stark statement. It is a quite gloomy 
type of description of the world, world we're living in. And I would hope, and here's where I would push back, I would hope that in the field of, of research science and, and medicine, that that's not necessarily the case. Because there, what's happening is it's based on the discovery. It's based on the empirical facts. What does the lab results show? And I think there, there is a, a great opening for brilliant and even not so brilliant Jewish minds of boys and girls to enter to that world and be part of it and help bring the miraculous types of drugs and, and research that, that sets the standard for the next generation. And, and in that way, I think there's an appreciation that you can't politicize that that doesn't necessarily become part of it. You know, in other words, don't, don't, don't be so sure of that, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to give you overall agreement. I'm going to give you overall agreement, but the insanities of DEI and all these things, they do poison the empirical sciences as well. Yeah, I think it might also exist even in the nuts and bolts world of the emergency room medicine and the hospitals. I think there is a place there where where appreciation of of good hands and good heart and bedside manner. I think that that is a place where I think you could still see a, a term derech eretz type of feeling. That doesn't mean that you need term derech eretz to become a a a a researcher in the sciences, but. At least you will love what you're doing, and you won't see it as a tremendous bit of it or just a way to put money into your pocket. I think that's part of what what, what the term Derech Eretz Shita helps do is that it, 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 the person who who goes onto that path doesn't feel that they have somehow betrayed the better part of themselves by not sitting and learning. The other thing I would say about the college campuses, you know, there was a time where the reason why we going to college was so important was because that's where you would get certain aspect of training and intellectual development that you wouldn't get anywhere else there was a there was a type of reasoning that you would be exposed to there would also be a type of training in areas of of Parnosa that you wouldn't be able to have in anywhere else and you'd be able to operate on the highest level of contribution to society using your mind and skills. I think colleges have moved away from that, I think, as has been displayed in the last couple of weeks. But there was a time that you could see that for Hirsch and for his students, going to college was was crucial. Going to Bonn University, uh, being accepted in those higher places was the only place that type of wisdom was available. I think today, colleges have turned into something completely different. And I think that's Part of the reason why I, you know, I agree with you that it's it's not a place for a good boy and girl. Let's go on to the next question, which I think is a little bit connected to that. What are some different strains of Judaism with universalistic tendencies that further articulate such a philosophy? Now, this is a hard one. What do you say, Ramir? Oh, I think I think so. Uh, uh, let's take Renaissance Italy, Bisofuno, uh, or or classical Spain. And in our own days, as I mentioned before, of Rhinus and um, well, here's one that I would say lingers, and it's a tiny artifact, but that is uh, the religious Zionist. Uh, I don't know if the word is left, but the, the humanistic strains mm-hmm. of religious Zionism, which, as one of its uh, foremost advocates, uh, Yehuda Gilad, once said to me, he said, 
this is a very good movement to belong to because you can fit all our members in a telephone booth <laughs> for one meeting. So again, but I think that is a that is a reasonable aspect of it. And I don't know what lingers in uh, in Gush today, but I suspect that something of a Lichtenstein and Rav Amital lingers still in, in Gush. So you might have some of that there. And there are wandering German Orthodox who have sailed away from the headquarters who still maintain bits and pieces of the Rabbina's uh, shitas. But if you're looking for a place in the context of America today, which is not an artifact, where there would be a more universalist morality, sense of empathy, sense of compassion, sense of justice, then I will say that day has not yet come. But as orthodoxy gets bigger, there are going to be more people that are not suffering, that are not satisfied with the mitzvahs we have now. And um, maybe here and there in the YU world, you might find uh, bits and pieces of that, many of the writers and authors and speakers in the YU world who have not drifted to the left ideologically, but do have more expansive view of the non-Jew. Yeah, I'm going to throw in something that I just thought about, you know, and, and I'm not a big chassid, Rameir, of sending Chabad Shluchim to all these far corners of the United States. But I think those nascent communities that these Chabad house people try to create around themselves do happen to have, by by necessity, an appreciation of the neighbors and the culture. It doesn't work otherwise. Again, if you if you dig deep into that Chabad Shuyach's heart and see what he's reading, it's not going to be anything close to what you were talking about. But practically, there is a lot of uh, in- involvement. There is an appreciation of of the neighbors. Uh, they're trying to work with the community and and even the, the non-religious. Uh, they're all part of something, not just in you know in, in a condescending way. So I think it does. You know, it, yeah. it, you might discover at least a, a a heart and appreciation of the other there that you might not find other places. I, I agree with you, and I think we have to trace it to the man himself that the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself was aware of larger socio-cultural issues. And therefore, he stood at times almost alone. And I'm thinking here of the, the school prayer and Bible reading decisions of uh, what is euphemistically called the court of Earl Warren. And um, he was in favor of maintaining public prayer and Bible reading. In that sense, he was almost at one with Rabbi Miller, who also had a a sense that the we must care to some degree for not just the physical but the spiritual aspects of the non-Jew. And also, if I'm not mistaken, I think Chabad houses actually have various um, you know, rehab facilities that they run all across the country. So I think that's not a bad example. And I think the Lubavitcher himself is the cause of it. The only thing I would say, and again, you know, I'm sort of like balancing this. Let me compare it. I don't know if you, you feel it's a good comparison. The, the Mormons who present themselves as such wonderfully put together, pleasant people who, when they you interact with them and, and you, you speak with them, you, you see there's a morality and an appreciation of, of things which are a total rejection, basically, of 
many of the of, of, of the popular zeitgeist that we feel is such an anathema to, 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 to Jewish values, in the Mormon church, in the Mormon communities, they are what we would call so fundamentalistly uh, correct and, and, and welcoming uh, w- without necessarily being like the Amish. On the other hand, and this is where I, I want to compare it to the Chabad houses and the Shluchim, if you dig deep and you go, you, you're, you're, you, you get entry into the inner circle, you will discover a, a, an ideology which is very strange and, 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 and in many ways something that, that's, that's shocking. I think the same thing might happen for this good-natured fellow, oh, I love my Chabad house, I love my Chabad rabbi. And then when you start really getting deep into what he really believes and 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 what the non-Jews are, and you talk about the Shloisha Klipas Atmeos, and you talk about things like that, you're going to discover a whole different perspective. Be, be careful here, because I find that very often uh, a man or a Jew or a Gentile's philosophy is sometimes at odds with his persona, and that you can find. Uh, I once said to a Satma friend of mine, we're talking about Satma and I said. You know, the people you're being mavakam in the hospitals, they're all Zionists, they're all Marine Malin, et cetera. And again, he, he laughed. And the, the terrence really is that the, their goodness, their personal goodness, is really much more their reality than their philosophy. So, you know, I think the same thing might be true with Chabad or with the Mormons. Go to the Chabad yeshivas, the ones that produces these shulchim, and I think you won't be able to say that because the shulchim, are dyed in the wool as deep as any trellis can be in, in any sort of beged. And therefore, even though you're right, they need for expedient reasons to work with the non-Jewish world, to, uh, to be impressed by them, to, to, to have a punim yofais, to extol humanity. But it's all within the limited Gedorim that the Rebbe gave. I wanted to add a point about the Mormons because I think it's Naget and Zeshmuz. Sure. My son, as you might know, is a bus driver by profession. And we schmooze often about how the boys and girls at various yeshivas and girls' schools behave. But he also drives non-Jews as well from the New York inner city, from across the country. And he says, without a doubt, the best behaved group of young boys and girls he ever drove were the Mormons. It was the Mormons. They were the ones who thanked him. They were the ones who left the bus clean. They were the ones who, when he started to turn off the light in the back, they turned it off. Said They were the best mentioned. And here's an akuda I would add, that when you talk about the fading of Hersheyanism, how much better would not our world be if that kind of menschlichkeit, which the Mormons have, and which a true Hershey would have, if the Haredi world would have that, if we would have our pleas and, and thank yous and and if we would behave properly, and if we wouldn't be getting on the line for 10 items or less with 20 items or more in the, in the, in the grocery stores, you know, if we just had that basic menschlichkeit, if we didn't hit the horn with absolute rage at the first second that the line doesn't move. So I think there is a lot to be learned there for the Mormons in terms of filtering a culture and taking the good parts out of it. A hundred percent, you know, and, and let's not forget the sacred responsibility that almost every young Mormon student has, which is to go on the shlichus, 
In other words, even b- instead of going to the colleges to party, and again, you're not, I don't know how many parties you have in Brigham Young University anyway, but, right. but, but what they do is they, they go out to, you know, uh, uh, to go to some far flung place in, 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 in Africa or in South America and they do Avodah Sakodesh. And that, that is expected for every single Mormon, uh, Mormon young person. It's quite incredible, like I say, you know, despite the weird origins and the the sort of otherworldly theology that the Mormon church is built on. You, you mean to say the archangel Moroni was really not in Joseph Smith's backyard with those travels? Look, I think the salamander is probably crawling up my back right now telling me to, hey, stay away from us. Let, let's move on to the next question. Could Rabbi Schiller explain his staunch interest in the Catholic church? and his perspective on its current state of affairs, and how the Catholic Church relates to observant Jews today. Okay, so here you have to understand that, to me, society is not bifurcated, that society is a whole in many ways, and that when uh, Christianity is strong, it's going to have a general positive effect on the spiritual state of society. And I think that's true in all monotheistic environs. And again, it could be true in a Protestant state or an Orthodox uh, Christian state, that the more the religion and the morality and the traditions and culture permeate the air, the more it's going to be a ready and good air for all, for all human beings. And that we're going to have to understand that they're not going to be turning to the Sheva Mitzvahs as we understand them, that their belief system is going to be rooted in their own culture and their own history, and to demand that uh, a Belfast Presbyterian should be should be rooted in, in Sheva Mitzvahs, then uh, that's um, that's not going to uh, to happen. So that's my interest. And my interest was born back in the early 60s when the American conservative movement, before it had become the faceless, soulless movement that it is today, in those days, was very much linked to the fortunes of uh, of Christianity. Now, what has happened since the Second Vatican Council is that the Catholic Church, as all other forms of religiosity in Western Europe and North America, less so in Eastern Europe, but it has crumbled. So there's, if we would take um, the religiosity of Americans uh, during the pontificate of Pius Twelfth and compare it to today, uh, it would, it's a shambles. I mean, everything is, is falling apart. And it's falling apart to a large extent due to the um, surrender of the hierarchy. And the surrender of the hierarchy is the term that I would have used since John the 23rd. But today, it's not just the surrender of the hierarchy under Francis, it is in fact an actual war of the hierarchy against essential religion, against essential morality. We could spend many programs discussing historically speaking how that came about. It is certainly shocking. But in general, my belief is that there is a religious moral core to society as a whole, and that it affects all of us, that let's say a collapse of respect and a, and a collapse of cooperation rooted in the collapse of Christianity permeates our own our own life, permeates our own institutions. So you cannot pry these things apart. And that, as we mentioned before, 
um, Lubavitch or Vigda Miller, others sensed this to some extent. Uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein certainly sensed it. So that's my interest. It's been around since 1964. If you will indulge a story on that for just a minute. Uh, 1964, one of the major books of the Goldwater campaign was called None Dare Call a Treason. The author recommended that we read a newspaper called The Wanderer, Catholic paper, and I dutifully subscribed in the spring of 1964. But as the excesses of Vatican II went on and on, the editors of The Wanderer split, and um, Alphonse Matt and Walter Matt. Walter Matt founded The Remnant, which was a more staunchly anti-Vatican II paper, with whom I have maintained friendly relations over the years. I've often been invited to... uh, Orthodox seminaries to speak to the seminarians. So to me, we cannot we cannot separate these things, and that the death of the Catholic Church or the visible Catholic Church is a, is a very terrible thing for society. You know, I, I think our listeners might be a little bit perplexed because the standard historical take vis-a-vis Judaism about Vatican II is, oh, this was a great moment for Jewish-Christian relations that up until that point, the Jew was still the devil. The Jew was still considered the wandering testifier to God's wrath and punishment. And Vatican II gave this great bone to Judaism that even though we are genetically related to those that kill Christ, even though we reject Jesus as our Savior, we can't be considered partners in in his death, and there needs to be love and appreciation of the Jewish people, and, and seemingly a statement against anti-Semitism. And here you are saying that Vatican II was the death knell of uh, the, the real Catholic Church that, that could be perhaps respected and, and been a positive force. I, I don't see those two statements as contradictory. This throws us back again to the War of 1812 when Napoleon is invading Russia and the Rebbe's disagree as to whose victory we should pray for. And the Balatanya, as you know, was a staunch supporter of the Tsars. And he said, if the Tsars win, it's going to be good for the Jews, Baruchnius, but bad Begashmius. And if Napoleon wins, it's going to be Faked, it's going to be good. Uh, so I think that this is a an ironic mystery of existence that we are going to have to live with the fact, accept the fact that when the major faiths are strong, that there is going to be, to whatever degree, a desire for conversion of the Jews or um, various different other aspects to it. But here again, I know it's going to be, as you say, an adjustment for our listeners, but I think you have to look at the broad picture here. You have to look at the broad picture. It, It cannot just be what's going to be best for us. And that touches on so many areas of human life. I mean, Let's say somebody in Muncie who's uh, advocating for liberal zoning laws because it's good for a few families in the center of Muncie and doesn't take into account the effect that might have on life in general in Ramapo and Rockland County. So I think we need a much more broader assessment of these things. And to my mind, that broader assessment leads us to a respect for staunch religious faith and practice and um just my own wanderings that uh, I have not found among any any denominations staunch 
Christian denominations uh, any sense that um, they treated me or looked at me askance. And Faket, there's always great respect. But on the other hand, again, in terms of Christianity, their desire is that I become them. But okay, if they don't use deceit or coercion, which they're not really supposed to use, they, if they're not really supposed to use deceit or coercion, then okay, Gesundheit, we, we have certain beliefs about them, we have certain beliefs about others, but the overall health of society, spiritual health of society, cultural health of society, has to take precedence, I think, over those things. I, I think there was something a little bit more than just you know, being able to, you know, undo the shackles and just join and jump in the swimming pool with, 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 with the, with the Christians. And maybe that's part of the, the undercurrent of why it was so important to make that statement was because I, I think the sort of, there was an impression that Pope Pius XII had not been sensitive to the destruction of European Jewry and not done enough to protect them. And I think and, there was, I think many books have been written, many books have been written. To, to disprove that thesis, there was a first the famous play, The Deputy, which which argued that. But the question is, here's a man living under uh, fascist Italy and with the Germans all over the place. Don't you think there was an impression in the world that the church didn't do enough and therefore Vatican II was sort of almost a reaction to the the, the, the Holocaust in some ways? I think that what he did, given the situation he was in, was to save thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Italian Jews off the record in hidden places. If he would have gotten up in, in Rome under the German occupation and said who knows what, that would be the end of him. He did issue an encyclical in the late 1930s, which was very critical of National Socialist Germany with mit Brenedicke Zorg. I think it was actually written in German with, with burning saying. So the um, I, I think that record is very, very cloudy. I think post-World War II in the world, there is a, a repulsion against authoritarianism of the right, and that that leads to many things, not just Vatican II, but at least to many things across the board. I understand that. Yeah, especially I think you know when when you when you when you look at the the images from the Holocaust, the skeletal. Um, yeah. Uh, survivors, um, I think that was part of what the public uh, demanded, that there need to be a statement embracing the Jew and not necessarily seeing him. And I think, again, I, I, I'm, I'm not as well-versed as you are in, in the Catholic history, but I do think that was the trend, and I think that was one of the reasons why it was important that the church show itself as a lover and defender and a partner— let me ask you this. Let me, let me ask you this. If those Vatican II pro-Jewish documents and if the document of religious liberty and dignitatis humani and if all those things would cause 60, 70 years later, Francis, would you say it was worth it? A great, a great, a great question. And uh, you're assuming that this this was inevitable. I mean, this is what you're saying. I'm saying that if you question, if you question so much of your dogmatic and ritual structure, can the faith of the masses survive? If you're going to change the mass, if you're going to change so many other aspects of the faith, is it not going to eventually come to the Pope who says, who am I to judge? The African bishops have been the most vociferous in their denunciation of, 
of Francis's uh, um, deviations. And um, I have some hope that uh, if the next uh, College of Conclave votes, that the African bishops, being more traditional types, that uh, there might might yet be some salvation for the church to come out of Africa. The, the partnerships that we've had with Catholic clergy and Catholic programs, the Aguda and others, have worked with the Catholics most prominently in terms of amicus briefs and other things, in terms of safeguarding religious freedoms. Uh, that seems to have increased exponentially where we find Jews and Catholics working together uh, for many things. I think that type of common ground was opened a lot more because of Vatican II. I think, I don't know how, although you're right, there was always these statements that were issued together, but I think the friendliness and the connection, the connectivity, again, your question is, is, it, is Francis worth this? Is is the moral shambles? I don't mean just Francis. I mean the complete- The moral of, shambles, the moral faith. shambles of the world. Oh, is what of, of the world, yes. Oh, Francis, Francis is a- is Yeah, a, he's just a symbol. Oh, he's oh, a, right. a, in your mind, he's a symbol of, of the shambles that the world is in today. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, um, one point before we go on. I want to ask all our listeners who have listened to this last segment that if you don't like it, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's go on. <laughs> okay. Here's the last question. And here, this is sort of like a question for both of us. Could both of you explore the greatest impact you feel that you've had on the modern Orthodox world with the institutions that you taught over the course of your careers? So uh, I'll let you go first on this one. There's no question that the world of modern Orthodoxy, which I entered, in September of 1977, a month before Reggie Jackson's threes home runs to beat the Dodgers in the World Series, that's a vastly different world than the modern Orthodox world today. Three things have happened. One, the more religious elements within modern Orthodoxy have strengthened. That has been caused by the year in Israel. It's been caused by Art Scroll. It's been caused by Jewish music. It's been caused by good mechanchem, better mechanchem in their system. So you've got that that uh, um, strengthening of the right, so to speak. You've got a strengthening of a tiny element of very trendy leftist types. And then you've got the vast majority that's still kind of muddled through with fun and frolic. But even the fun and frolic middle has been affected positively. Now, yes, in terms of my own self, I mean, I don't want to single out myself, but I think what happened was when they began to go to Eretz Yisrael, people came back here, they became Rabbeim, they became sports coaches, they became part of the fabric of the whole society. So then things like Davidi Mincha Marav before or after and after a game, unheard of when I first started out in 77, uh, wearing yarmulkes during games. Uh, some players played without them. Some, when they fell down, threw them off the court. They sort of made them fly off the court, saucer-like. So I, I think that this has all changed to the good. Learning is so much more a part of this society. And I'll tell you one story. I was once spending time in Teaneck. This must go back to the late 80s. And I went with the boys I was with to Minchamar of one of the big local shuls. And there was maybe 20 people there for Minchamara for the one million they had there. Today, it's hundreds. There's Minyonim, uh, Zeh Achazeh. So it's been a tremendous improvement. 
I don't want to single myself out, but I want so, to. So say let me that. sing your praises for a second, since you seem right. to, you know, you're tap dancing around what you actually did, and, and you're impressed by the change. Would you say that you and and others like yourself, who showed, I come from a strict Orthodox background, I love everything about the beautiful strict Orthodoxy that I keep, but I'm also your friend, your teacher. I know where you're coming from. I can talk your language. You can relate to me. I'm not just someone who's going to come be a dogmatic pronouncer and and condemn you. I'm not just going to walk into the classroom or walk into the sheer room and give this information and be disgusted by you and your life and say, take it or leave it. I'm going to have sensitivity. I'm going to be authentic. And I'm not going to treat you like a nebuch either. I'm going to revel in your successes I'm going to try to understand and have you teach me about where you're coming from and share these type of experiences. And I think that being such a person means that das occurs. It's no longer just chachma. It's no longer but das. Would you would you say that that's, uh, have I encapsulated what you think maybe your impact was? Not bad. I, I would say that in general, if you enjoy being with them and coming into the classroom with them, there's going to be a positive reciprocity, which will even enable a certain degree of severe discipline and demands because there is this generally pleasant atmosphere in the, in the luft, in the air. Now, um, a, a thought that occurs to me is, as far as all of this is concerned I would ask old-time MTAers and YUers from the 1950s sometimes, how can I understand they used to have dances, sock hops as they were called, on the basketball floor after there would be games between MTA and Ramaz and Flatbush and BTA and so forth. They had mixed dances on the gym floors as part of an official event, school event. And I said, where were the rabbi and what was going on? And the answer I invariably get is none of the Rabbeim knew or cared anything about our basketball games. They weren't there. They didn't come. They weren't interested. So I think this is what you're saying to some extent, that the old-time European Rabbeim who taught in these schools, they weren't really able to feel themselves part of it. And therefore, the culture went on unimpeded, unimpeded, whatever idiosyncrasies and whatever avlas that were there went on unimpeded. And the new generation of, of Rebbeim, I think, was very different in that regard. The The first year that uh, I came to Ramaz as coach, the, the league did not yet require helmets. So I required that they all had to wear. I, I got them knitted blue and gold yarmulkes with Ramaz on it with their names. So again, these sorts of things, the 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 minchamarovs, all these things, in a background of general pleasantness, I, th- I think you're right about that, yeah. I would also tell our listeners to look into Jeffrey Gurak's uh, writings about sports in the yeshiva world. I think he's written very, coach, he's done a very nice bit of research in that area about, as you say, the sock ops, the cheerleaders. And finally, when halachic questions... No more, cheer, no more cheerleaders. When I came into this business, many of the schools sure. had cheerleaders who ran on court in scantily clad dresses and did their whole dance routines. It's all done. It's, sure. It's, 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 sure, the pom-poms. Um, yeah. Speaking about myself, I entered into uh, the Skokie Shiva Koyal as a, as a Rebbe and a teacher in the high school. 
1986. And I was connected to modern Orthodox institutions on a daily basis from 1986 to 2012 uh, when I joined the Yeshiva of Newark, which was not really a modern Orthodox institution. It was more like a reaction to a uh, to a Hasidish institution or Yeshivish institution. So that gives me a, a quarter of a century in modern Orthodox institutions. Not bad. So it, it's hard to say. I, I would say that as uh, as a young person uh, entering into the into a modern Orthodox institution, I think it's it was important, as I said before, to create a connection uh, to show that there is a you are able to be part of their lives besides instruction. I think that that is something important, whether it's Shabbos uh, or whether it's 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 Purim. I think that these are things that I believe we were able to bring to the table that perhaps other teachers could not. And I hear from my students years later about the Shabbatonim that we had at our house, the shuls that they visited and the communities they were exposed to. And and I think, you know, I think that these are things that I'm not sure you mentioned before, whether the old European rebellion did them. I don't think so. I don't think they did it in a way that still respected the identity uh, of those people. Right. The other thing I would say is that I I was willing to be a voice of reason and honesty, not just in terms of the the lumdus that I thought you know I had been trained to to give over in a way that they could appreciate it, but also for the administrators to say, know what you are, don't try to act as if you're a yeshiva when you're not. And many times I found Rameyer, and I, you might have had similar experiences, that the Rabbeim that, that, that took the positions like I did wanted to continue acting like they were Magide Shir in, 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 in Ponovich or in Slabotka. They needed to understand that this was a different element they were dealing with and the type of learning that they were doing and teaching they would have to be doing needed to be geared for ultimate success. I mentioned this to you last week, and I know you disagreed with me, but I, I'm very proud of the fact that in, 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 in Ida Crown, where I taught for five and a half years, I convinced the Rebbeim and the administration that the best program is to have different Masechtas for each year and for the Rebbe to become an expert in that. I was very happy that the Rebbe should have an afternoon time where he could learn Kachim, Tyrus, whatever he wanted. But I wanted, what I demanded was the Rebbe be an expert in teaching Brochus, the ninth grade Rebbe. And the 10th grade Rebbe be an expert in teaching Arbi Psalchim, the 11th grade Rebbe teaching, being an expert in, in, in Hamafkid. And the 12th grade Rebbe, uh, being an expert in teaching Hakoinis, that they should actually have, or Elonirus, they should have Shlita on the material and, 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 and be willing to admit that we this isn't the yeshiva you grew up in, and 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 stop being frustrated that you didn't get the shteller <laughs> as as uh, uh, become the adim of the previous of the rosh yeshiva of where you were at. Know where you're at, and and I think that was a, a message that I and others tried to present. And I, I know that in that yeshiva, I think I was, I think I think that that helped immensely because, as you know, Rameyer, something you've taught many times 
you know where the joke goes as well. You know where the chap comes. You are able to, to work on your style, on your pedagogy, and you don't have to necessarily overload on the explanation because the explanation is second nature to you because you've already given it so many times. And therefore, what you can emphasize is the personal aspect of it, which brings the students into it. And I think that was, if, if, if I am going to copy the Bezdin Shalmala say, what did you accomplish there? I feel that that was something that I would, I, I'd like to say that that was something that, that only Nixon can make peace with China. Only somebody who had been in the Lumdische Welt and understood where they were coming from could tell them, this is what you have to do. And I think that's the reason why among the staff, I think that they, that they accepted it from me. As far as, you know, new Masefta every year or different Masefta of each grade, again, my position would be that, you know, the Rebbe needs the fishkite of doing something new every year. But I understand what you're saying, and uh, we won't quibble over that. Um, on the other point, that they the Rebbeim mistook themselves for uh, Rashi Yeshiva in some lake with Masifta, I can say in my 45 years, um, you know, at the very beginning, there was some old-time you know, European survivor obey. But once that was gone by, uh, 45 years since I've been in the business, I think I can seriously say I don't recall one Rebbe in in YHSQ, OTI, or MTA who thought he was sitting in Miroponovich. So maybe I was lucky. But those guys that I worked with, those Rebbe that I worked with, they knew very well where they were. Yeah, I, I think when you're dealing with places out of town, um, uh, uh, you have like a, a, a coil that was set up there and now where are they going to go? You know, I, I think in New York, things might be a little bit different, but in the places where I was, I, I felt this was something that was palpable. It was palpable to the point that um, I, it was something I think needed to be shaken up. So, yeah. well, as I said, five questions <laughs> that we could probably, again, I think each one of these could probably have been a, a program. And that's really a testament, not only to um, uh, to the seriousness of each question, but I think also the involvement that the uh, mayor and I'd say myself that we have and, and, and what we, the, how we take your points. We, we look forward to more questions. Yes. So we look forward, we look forward to more and uh, let us know. Uh, you can write to Rav Mayer, you can write to myself, R-A-V-K-I-V at Gmail, that's RavKib at Gmail, or RMS651 at Yahoo.com. First sort of uh, pretentious one is mine, and the second one, with his usual modesty, is Rav Mayer. So that is, send it to either of us, send it to both of us. Uh, believe me, uh, we will we will get your message, and hopefully your question will be next dealt with on the air. Be well, take care. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.